Welcome back to the LCS Podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. On today's program, Cy and I speak with Dr. Sherry Wells-Jensen, professor of English at Bowling Green State University. We discuss Sherry's Conlang class at Bowling Green, her own Conlang work, and related endeavors. All right, to, to start off, uh, Sherry, could you tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do? All right. Um, I'm Sherry Wells-Jensen. I am happily, just recently, an associate professor at Bowling Green State University. And that's Bowling Green in Ohio, not Bowling Green in Kentucky. Um, and what I do is I teach intro to linguistics a lot. Um, my areas of specialization are uh, varied. I'm kind of a generalist, I guess. Um, I do some language preservation um, phonology, especially applied phonology for people who want to be ESL, English as a Second Language Teachers. Um, one of my new interests is voice identification. That's, that's how do people recognize someone by listening to their voice. And this is kind of a long-term project that I have in the back of my head, which is rapidly moving to the front of my head, about making um, an Internet resource where people can go and type in the name of someone that they've heard of and hear a sample of that person's voice kind of like the audio equivalent of the thumbnail image. It's everywhere. You just Google someone, you can press images, and there's 50,000 pictures. You can't get an image, a sound image, a sound clip of someone's voice very easily. I mean, they're all out, they're all out there. You can go to NPR or whatever and type in Sarah Palin, and there's you know, 50,000 interviews with Sarah Palin, and that's, that's all good, but you had to go through all those steps. And if you're looking for someone like J.K. Rowling, if you want to hear what that voice sounds like to sort of further connect with the person, just like you might want to see her picture, um, you might also want to hear her voice, and that's really hard to find. Um, so what we're doing is putting together this database, which I'm hoping is going to become um, widely accessible, where you can become interested in someone and go hear what they sound like. And we can go back about 100 years. So, you know, I have Helen Keller, I have Thomas Edison, I have Babe Ruth, and some of those old recordings are kind of grainy, and you think, yeah, that could be yeah, just about anybody. Um, but as we get closer to the present day, you have a lot of options about which sound clip you can make and how you edit it. And um, I'm really excited about it. My, my goal in the end is, you know, on Google where you go to the search box and you see the images button, right below that there's going to be a sound button. You're going to press that, and shazam, you're going to get a voice clip. That's the eventual goal. I don't think we know yet enough about what it is that goes on in your brain when you identify a person by voice. We know lots about what areas of your brain light up when you identify a face visually, but what is it? What are the, what are the processes? What's the cognition and what's the neurology that goes into how do I know it's you when you speak to me and you're behind me or I'm not looking at you or whatever? How do you, how do, you do that? I don't think we know enough about that yet. So, so it's sort of a public service thing. It's a research thing. And it's huge amounts of fun to go out and hunt down those clips, too. So you got your Ph.D. in linguistics. Uh, where and when from, or perhaps just where from? See, the P my, my Ph.D. is from SUNY Buffalo, and my master's degree before that was from Southern Illinois at Carbondale. I thought that I was going to be an ESL teacher. That's what I really, really, really wanted to do, and I love that work still. But then I discovered linguistics while I was doing my master's degree and decided that there really was nothing for it. I had to get my Ph.D. in linguistics. Oh, I know that feeling. So, wow. Uh, did you work with Matt Dreyer? Was he there when you were there? Yeah, he was there. He's incredible. That's really cool. I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to see him work. Okay, so my follow-up question was, you have, um, 
you you got a PhD in linguistics, yet you're in an English department. How did that happen? That happened because when I came to Bowling Green, they had a master's degree for people who wanted to teach English as a second language. So I came to work in their MA TESOL program as one of the instructors. And I was their, I was their phonology geek. So I did the applied phonology, um, and then the, I got to do the syntax class, too. So I was very, very happy. Oh, well, that's really neat. So, um, and I think that it's a really neat idea, some of the th- things that I've looked at uh, with your program. So, for example, um, one of the things that uh, you let us know is that creative writing majors are required to take an introductory linguistics class, right? Isn't that a beautiful thing? It, yeah, they are. They are. And the creative writing faculty is very supportive of it. I, I often find that sometimes people kind of resent those things because something left over on the books from somebody else or some other long-ago time. Um, but the creative writing faculty are supportive of the whole thing, and they like it, and uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with how, that, how that's worked out. All right, so that brings us to your uh, introductory linguistics class, which uh, is unique in that you prominently feature... Um, language creation in some respect. Uh, can you tell us some more about that? It all comes out of my my desire to make the whole thing as fascinating to them as it is to me. And I was thinking, well, what kind of fairy dust can I sprinkle on Turkish morphology to make these young people from northwest Ohio, rural northwest Ohio, think that it's as cool as I think it is? And I wasn't coming up with anything because, frankly, if you are Im- as immersed in English as these guys are, and really that's your craft, and that's what you want to do, and that's what you want to be, is this, this um, artisan who works in English. You know, Turkish morphology is low on your list of things that you just really have to master and things that you even have to think are beautiful. <laughs> so I was thinking, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I make this work? Um, and so I thought, well, if I can get them invested not in Turkish morphology, but in morphology in general and in linguistics in general, and get them to build something, because these are creative people, right? So if I can get them to love what they're doing because it's their art, not because it's a series of language problems that I give them, um, maybe I could set them on fire with this stuff, and maybe I could get them to really, really like it if in the context of okay, I know you're working on a novel about, you know, sewer slugs who are intelligent and who are taking over the world. Well, what language do they speak? Let's build it, okay? But the, the really brilliant ones that I get are people who are just, they don't know what to do, and they're thinking, well, a language for what? I, I don't know what to do with that. And um, I tell them, well, just build anything. Look around you. What if it spoke? What, it, what would it be like? What would the what would sort of the cultural stuff be like, and what would the phonetics be like? That sounds a lot like this um, this uh, class page that I'm looking at, which is English 480-580 called Extraterrestrial Language. Would you mind telling us what that's about? Oh, that was incredible fun. Um, and that I did because they made a bad mistake in my department my first year and said, what would you like to teach? What would really make <laughs> you happy? And I thought, ooh. <laughs> What I meant to do when I um, what I meant to do with my academic career was astronomy in the first place, astronomy and physics. And um, yeah, I've always been kind of a science fiction fan and all that kind of stuff. And I'm an amateur kind of uh, follower of, of of that kind of science. And I thought, well, this would be a fantastic sort of cross-listed class because we can do 
what would an alien language really be like? And no, we're not just going to talk about Klingon um, as, as much as we all love Klingon. Um, we're really going to talk about, well, what could it be and what would it be and would we be able to learn it? And, hey, wait on just a second. Um, so is there life on other planets in the first place? And what, wait, wait, hang on, let's make sure we have this all, this, this astronomy stuff all sorted out. Do you guys know the difference between planets and stars? And do you know, <laughs> do you know all that stuff? And so we had an astronomer come into the class, and um, he talked very gently and very kindly, I thought, to them about <laughs> light and stars and galaxies and time and space. And so I got to do everything I wanted. I got lots of lots of astronomy. I got to do um, all kinds of sort of basic language philosophy stuff. And the, the, the funnest thing we did in, in the class was I, I went hunting for um, a group of constructed languages and a group of earth languages. And one of their assignments was to take one of these languages out of a hat randomly and describe it to the class at the end of class. And then we had to vote on which of these were the alien-constructed languages and which were actually just, oh, Earth languages. And that was tremendous fun. Uh, do you happen to remember which languages you chose and what the results were, no matter of curiosity? There was Daman, some Australian language that's uh, one of those uh, languages of initiation spoken by just men among men. It's kind of a, kind of a hybrid sort of created sort of natural thing. And then we did a couple, the natural languages we did on Earth, I think we did Hawaiian and we did Turkish, because those are both easy to get a hold of. And I can't remember what the other Earth languages were, and I'm blanking on the creative languages as well. There was one that was had something to do with electric eels, I think, that was a created language, where it had some kind of XYZ matrix. Uh, and, you know, I just have no idea what it was. And then we did Lodgeband. Lodgeband, Lodgeband, what is the vowel there? I just don't know. Lodgeband. Yeah, Lodgeband. Lodgeband is the... We did that. We did Lodgeband. Um, and that, that, that didn't get past them. They knew that was a creative language. Um, at least I got that far in teaching them what natural languages are like. Um, and I think we did Klingon. I don't... No, we couldn't have done Klingon because we actually had, we had one of the guys, um, a speaker of Klingon, come to our class, which was tremendous fun. Really? Ew. Ew. Andrew Strader, who um, translated large portions of Hamlet, happened. That, that guy to, sounds familiar, actually. He was fantastic. He was living at the time somewhere within an hour or two of Bowling Green. And last time I heard from him, he was on his way to Iceland because Iceland has a cool language and, the, and he wanted to do something about computer programming and got a job in Iceland. And he was great. He, you know, he came and talked about the creation of the language and he spoke with us in on and. Um, and we did a field methods, a monolingual field methods thing. I have a friend who um, speaks Mingo, which is a Iroquoian language, and so he came in and um, we did a little field methods thing with him. And they, uh, we had to deal with some really nasty verbs, and they were pretty sure that was a created language, um, which you know it isn't, but it was fun. It's fun. So, how did your students react to all this? Um, the well, for one, the idea of creating language in the first place, and for two, the, the diversity of kinds of languages that you presented in the class. Let's see. So, so the, the, the extraterrestrial language guys didn't do any language creation. Um, they just sort of had to deal with, with the languages that were there. And they really reacted. It was a range from dismay and despair to glee. 
um, which is yeah. what I get in the other class, too. Half of the people think, oh, Lord, God, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. What is she making us do, and why, and how is this relevant to me? And I hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, to the other people who think, oh, man, this is great. This is the most fun I've ever had. And then, you know, there, there, there are not many people in the middle. Either people kind of think it's just fantastic, or they hate it. They hate me. They hate the whole thing. And they're just desperate to get out. If they don't like it, what what is it that they don't like about it? That's a really good question. Um, here's my uncharitable answer, and I might as well give you the uncharitable one because I think maybe it's true. Um, in order to create a language, you have to really, really grok the concept. You have to know what you're doing thoroughly inside and out. And there's not a right answer because you have to make up the system and then work within the system. So if I give you a phonology problem and I say, find the, find the allophones, you can, in, in your desperation, go to your friend and say, what do I write down? I don't get it. Just what is the right answer? And your friend can tell you. And then you can kind of, you know, you can kind of get your C on the quiz and you can kind of slide by. But if I tell you, that's a really good list of words that you've created for your speakers of whatever it is. Um, let's introduce some more some um, some phonological variation into this. So, what are your what are your what are your I keep saying morphemes? What are your phonemes, and what do they do? And then they really have to understand it. And I think um, some of them just don't like that because there's there's no ducking out. There's no compromise. There's no I sort of half get this at, at least for a fleeting moment. During every assignment, you have to really know what you're doing. Have you found that students come away with a deeper or a surer knowledge of the linguistics than they would if you had just gone sort of the usual um, method for teaching intro mm -hmm. linguistics, where you go over the grammar types and you give them analysis problems and so on? I don't know. I hope so. You know, if I, I would like someday to figure out a way of really testing that, of really doing a controlled you know, kind of experiment and seeing if that's true. But I don't, I, so I don't really know. I believe it's true. I want to believe it's true. And I think it almost has to be true if you really build something. I mean, it's the difference between looking at little pieces of... Because if, if you do the problem sets, you know, you do the Turkish morphology problem, and then you do the, what, some Spanish phonology and then you do some syntax with a Polynesian language, and you get a lot of stuff about linguistics, but you've never followed one language through all the steps. So I feel like they get a deeper understanding, or at least an exposure to a deeper understanding of how the whole thing fits together. I have to tell you, from my experience as an undergraduate going through linguistics, one of the things that really helped me to understand what I was doing was to take one of these, some of these toy concepts that we were getting in introductory, introductory phonology and morphology classes and kind of testing them out in the realm of language creation. And that really got me to understand uh, kind of what the boundaries were and what the terms were. Uh, you know, what is important? What does it mean to actually use an ergative language, uh, for example. Um, I don't think there's any way I could have gotten ergativity just by having it explained. And in fact, I've seen uh, plenty of undergraduate linguistic students that just have ergativity explained 
in a classroom setting again and again and again and again, and who just uh, uh, don't quite get it. I think that you're. I think you're dead on there because I think I've explained ergativity before, and I've felt it go right through the room, and it doesn't stop at anybody. And you know, one or two people think, "Oh, that was cool. What was that? Oh, it's gone." Um, but I think that if 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 they had to build it into their systems, and then actually translate something, um, then it would then it would stick. I think you're right. So I, I noticed you said that this was sort of your dream class, but for some reason it's still on your schedule. Um, so I have to ask, how did your colleagues at Bowling Green react to this class? <laughs> you know, they wrote it down. They looked at the evaluations and they kind of said, well, I guess people sort of like that. Um, and then I think the economics factor came in and they said, yeah, but you know what? If you're going to teach a summer class, it really ought to be intro to linguistics, right? Right? That's what you're going to do for us, right? <laughs> to which the only collegial answer is, oh, but of course, that's what I want to do. More than anything, I want to teach interlinguistics in the summer. It's what I want. <laughs> of course it is. How did you know? So I can't take the webpage down, partly because it says ET if you're out there, you know, phone home. And I just, and every, because every once in a while somebody hits that link. How many years have you been teaching this interlinguistics class with the uh, language creation element? You know, I slid it in on them the first semester I was here. So I think that was probably either spring of 2001 or spring of 2002. So the first the first chance I got at the uh, creative writing majors, I think I, I jumped on it right away. I presume you, uh, you plan to keep on teaching it this way for the foreseeable future. Do you have any plans to maybe expand it, to change it, or what are your ideas? I think that what, I'm, what my eventual goal for that is going to be is that it's an integrated kind of whole structure of language set. And I didn't think I really wanted to do this, but the more and more um, there's kind of a, a move toward online education, the more irritating it is to say, okay, stop doing the language creation, go off that page and do this Turkish morphology problem, okay, now come back. Um, so I think that my goal is to keep putting in more and more support. There's a, lot, there's a whole lot more help modules up than there used to be. Um, meaning that there are some now and there weren't any then. <laughs> so, and 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 I and I one of the the most fun things in the world for me is if they're not getting a concept to go make up the language of snails that illustrates beautifully some particular point they were having trouble with and slap it up on the web and say, Well, you know, go go see go go do the snailish problem and then you'll know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm hoping I'm hoping to put more of those in and, and to add some sound files. So uh, I'm curious, how did, you, uh, how did you initially come up with the idea of incorporating language creation? So, for example, have you created languages yourself? How did this come to you? I think this happened because I have this sick, undying jealousy of people who are asked by Hollywood to make languages, and they've never called me to do that. So I have not spent a lot of time um, creating languages myself. I just have been always very jealous of people who do. Um, and who take the time to do that. And so I thought, well, this is a way that I can play. Because this to me is such fun that I, I just have always really wanted to. And I don't, I'm not especially, the language that I've built that sort of goes along with, um, with my class, you know, they can, they can see my example at each step um, along the way. It's not especially brilliant or innovative, but I had a whole lot of fun making it. Um, so I think part of it has just been 
my uh, desire to keep playing with my language and to do, you know, when, I, when they ask me to teach interlinguistics, I think, well, how is this going to be fun for me? And one way it's fun for me all the time is if I get to keep building um, on this creative language. But it really wasn't something that I did before. It's just something that I sort of always kind of wistfully thought about doing. So do you have a language or an idea for a language that you're working on now? Nothing that is particularly clever <laughs> um, because uh, what, I'm, what I'm putting together is meant primarily to, um, it's directed toward the amusement and the intrigue of the people I know who are in my class who are creating languages. I notice you didn't say no. <laughs> no, not no as such. But I've been thinking a lot about what it is people make. Um, I've become fascinated with these with these beginning students who are forced forced by law and decree to create a language. These are not people who would ordinarily do it or who necessarily want to, um, but I make them. And so I've really been interested in what their instincts are and how how they put a language together when. They're not driven to it by anything except fiat. Um, and so I've been really interested in watching the patterns that, that emerge. Uh, I've been calling them prenlangs, for lack of a better term. And these, these, little, these little languages that people build for me, uh, they've got lots of similarities. And like what? Everybody's word for friend is heart person. Um, everybody's <laughs> word for sun is daylight. And that's contrasted with night light, which, you know, uh, which is contrasted with the little night lights, which are, you know, the stars. Lots of people have polysemy with seed and egg. That's really, really, really popular. And everybody's word for man and woman uh, is person with a gender. Do most of your students come up with... Um sort of synthetic languages like that, where you're combining uh, a few different elements? Or do people also do isolating elements where we have just a word for sun? No, by fiat, they have to combine them because I want them to learn morphology, so they don't have a choice about that. Ah, okay. It says right in there, you're, not, you're making Turkish, you're not making Chinese. Sorry. Because, because I found that people don't, they, they miss what's going on if they go sky, blur, Moon, blah blah, rock, plea. You know, and then they just they make up the isolated language, and then I say, well, what is, what's a morpheme? Like I don't know. Just they just tell me to do. Okay, I made up the words. Leave me alone. Because <laughs> we don't have enough time to do really clever syntax for the most part. By the time we get the syntax, the semester's kind of over, um, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's second semester stuff. Is the good syntax. Um, so I have to force them to think about, to do radical superior stuff and say, so what are the morphemes that you're, that the, the vending machine language is one of the ones I really like this semester that, that they're making. So, you know, what concepts does the vending machine have and how does the vending machine perceive the universe? And so, you know, do they need a separate morpheme for people or are those just soft machines? I mean, what is it? What do they think? How do they, so we do stuff like that. Um, and, and, and I make them. If they don't have enough of it, I return the paper and say, mm, morphemes, please. Combine morphemes. 
Um, so I have to mention a, a little while back, you had mentioned how uh, frustrating it is that you haven't been called for um, to create a language. Now, I have to tell you, we all share your frustration in the language creation community. Uh, one of the particularly infuriating stories is this language, Tofan, that was created for a video game whose name I cannot remember. But um, the creators of the video games, the non-language creators, said that when they thought of the idea for creating a language for this game, um, they didn't know where to go. So they just kind of went to the internet and found a linguistics graduate student who had a couple of phrases of Klingon on his homepage. And so they contracted him to create a language. And I wonder, how did you miss the thousands, thousands of people on the internet that do this for fun? <laughs> Alas. Well, I hope he did a good job because, oh. <laughs> and on the other hand, there are people from our community who have done some of this for fun. Like uh, Matt Pearson did it, um, Sally Caves did. Well, um, well, Matt Pearson did it and then was dumped when um, they decided yeah. that uh, his expertise uh, demanded more money than they were willing to shell out. And so they thought, oh, forget it. We'll just dump him and throw in a bunch of random words. Nobody will know the difference. <laughs> Works for George Lucas. Yeah. Oh, there was a fascinating article where somebody, uh, Matt Hopped on his blog recently, had mentioned something that I had thought about myself uh, so many times. It was the first thing I thought of when I saw Return of the Jedi, where um, Princess Leia comes to free Han Solo. And she's disguised as a bodyguard. And she appears to say this phrase twice, you know, just twice in a row. It's the same thing. Yet it means something different the second time. Mm. And he, he proposed an analysis of that. I thought it was just hilarious. Well, maybe there's oh, some I kind of scent or some kind of, you know, really subtle eye shift that, you know, meant <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> they, they know about tones and, and slight differences of vowels and so and maybe they don't care. Ahem. I remember that she's wearing a helmet. <clears throat> oh, helmet. See, that's, hmm. that's true. So um, I wonder, uh, you had mentioned back at the beginning that you have worked in language preservation, that that was something that you did as a linguist. My experience, and this is just my personal experience going through linguistics, uh, if I ever mentioned to either a colleague or a professor that I created languages for fun, one of the first things that is often said uh, by a number of linguists is that, why on earth would you waste your time creating a language when there are so many languages out in the world, real languages that are dying, that need to be documented? And there, this, these two practices, um, creating languages for fun and documenting dying languages, were given as kind of an either-or. Either you're doing one or you're doing the other, and clearly one is the right choice and one is the wrong choice. Uh, I'm very interested that you appear to be a linguist who does both and apparently finds value in both. Yeah, well, okay, so I would only, I would only accept that criticism from someone who is actually doing language preservation, right? If they're just studying the syntax of French just to pick something, you know, they don't have any business telling me not to create a language. What are they doing? You know, it's French. Hello. 
We know about that. Right. But, but I mean, the people who are creating languages are, not, are generally not positioned to go off into the Amazon to do that kind of work. Um, and it's for different purposes. Those are, these are complementary endeavors. So um, I create, in, in my particular case, I, don't, I, I appreciate the art of it, though I'm, I'm not an artist with what I do. I, maybe I, I could be, but I'm not. I, I, I build it for a specific purpose, which is pedagogical. Um, and I can't find a language out there that does everything I need to teach to my students. It would take me forever to right. find exactly what I need in natural languages to do what I need to do. What I need to do is teach my students about linguistics, and you know, from that group of people are going to emerge people who want to do language preservation, which is our ethical obligation as linguists. So if we're not doing it ourselves, we can be training people and inspiring people and giving people the knowledge that they need to get out there and, and do the work that needs to be done. But I don't think that's a real objection to um, to language preservation. If, uh, to sorry, to uh, it's not a real objection to um, creating languages at all, um, especially if people aren't creating languages themselves. Well, it's it's nice to hear a, a linguist uh, a linguist champion our cause, so to say. Well, it's it's a legitimate pursuit, and anything that people do, it's that's not destructive. You know, we we should think twice before we before we belittle people who are doing smart things for fun. They should get over that because it doesn't make any sense. Have you tried teaching linguistics purely from the sort of traditional method? Yeah, yeah, I did that um, when I was doing my uh, graduate work. I, had, I was given a class, and I also have a class um, that is more focused on sociolinguistics, in which I do some structure. And they do it generally from a more traditional. I don't. I don't make my future English teachers create languages. We, we don't have time because we have to do lots and lots of sociolinguistics. So, how do you compare the experience of teaching, uh, teaching it the traditional way, and teaching it the way that you've been doing it more recently? Language creation is a lot harder from the teaching um, perspective uh, because I want my students truly take ownership of what they build and truly fall in love with the system they're making and fall in love with the people or the creatures or the machines or whatever it is that they're creating it for, Um, which means that every time I grade one of their language creation projects, I have to completely enter their context. And so I have to think, okay, now wait a minute. Now what are the segments we're using here? Okay, and what are the the rules for their combination and what are the... the, uh, what are the phonotactics that I have, and what are the phonemes? Okay, good. Now, what was that morpheme for sky again? Hang on, let me go back. And I have to do that 30 times whenever, whenever a set of papers come in. So, so to, to allow it to be as unstandardized as I do, it's just a grading nightmare. Um, it's fun. It's a delight, uh, especially when I get five or six people in the class, like I have this semester, who are really being clever and who are really invested. Um, but I'm not sure I can recommend it to someone who wants to stay sane and have a family life because it's just a grading wise, it's, it's, it's awful. For those five or six people who are really invested, they love it. And sometimes it's just hysterically funny because the things they come up with are just so great to read. And um, comparing it to the traditional approach, um, I think it's harder, yet, and yet it's always fresh because my temptation is often... Uh, 
okay, it's morphology. Here comes Turkish. Okay, and then there's that Hebrew compared to Spanish problem from language files, which is actually really very good. And so we'll do that one. And I have these standard kind of, you know, okay, and here's your, here's your, morpho- here's your, here's your phonology problem. You know, here's the hard one, here's the easy one, go. <laughs> I, and then, I remember that. Yeah, and, you know, you put them together, you slap them down, you hang them out, you get a set of homework and you do it. And, but I'm never, I can never quite go on autopilot when I'm doing the language creation class because there's always something wrong with my assignment that I have to fix for next time, which is, which is kind of fun because then I'm hoping it'll be better. And it's always, it's, I always, it's, it's impossible to just leave it static um, for me when I'm doing the language creation stuff because there's always something, there's always something I did not explain clearly enough. I mean, that's true with the other class too, but, but I feel like I'm also, along, along with them building their little, their little, their little languages, their little prenlangs, Along with them building something, I'm also building something coherent, um, which is that step-by-step kind of walk through it, build a language. I'm playing while they're playing, so I think we're all in a better mood, really. That actually sort of prompts me to ask, you have several language ideas here um, that are quite interesting. And I have to ask, what, what do you think are the particularly interesting projects that people have done with your class? Oh, man. So, my favorite one in the whole world, um, a language created by souls in purgatory with the specific goal of getting God's attention. Um, It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Lots of threes and sevens, and everything has to be in threes and sevens, and um, oh, lots of really clever literary illusion. That was just um, a marvelously fun language. Um, That was by uh, Rachel Sample, right? Yeah. Yeah, just just a brilliant piece of work. And this is it was a freshman, you know, never done any linguistics before, just kind of dropping into this for the first time. Brilliant. I was I love it. I actually was looking at that language, or um, you had sent uh, a doc file that she had made for that language before we talked today, and um, it really is fascinating. It's like she, the creators of this language, and of course she developed this framework that was taken directly from Dante's kind of uh, religious symbolism and applied it to language. It, it really is a fascinating idea, and I enjoyed looking at it. It was fun. It was a nightmare to Greg. It's like, you know, hang on, I have to have three of these, and what, and how many times? Oh, man. I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I tossed that across the room while I was grading it. Thinking, I'll do it later! But it was, it was insane. Insanely fiendishly complicated, but just just luscious, you know. And all all the you know, as, as far as prenlangs go, I, I just hardly get anything ever that complicated. Um, language uh, spoken, uh, the intergalactic language of drunks. Lots of fricatives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm liking the vending machines one that's new this semester. I'm liking the language of the little holly hobby ornaments who um, have no movement of their own, a pathological fear of cats, um, and no tongues because they can't move their, you know, they can't move their face. <laughs> um, oh golly! And then some some others that that sort of revealed themselves in sort of little 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 uh, sparks of of ingenious cleverness in the grammar here and there. I can't remember what else I have up for examples. I think that might be those might be the best ones. 
Uh, I see uh, a couple that you've mentioned here are Likupa, um, Juth, maybe Juthin. I'm not sure what the what this is. Likupa is actually mine. That's a uvular. That's the one that goes I don't remember what they all are. One of them Uh, is Robert Graves' language for a novel, which, which is really very clever, of people who were a group of people who were kidnapped off the planet um, about 2,000 years ago, speaking Latin, went to Mars, uh, had some had the language carried on there for a couple centuries, and then got dumped on some other planet with some other extraterrestrial race, and so had lots of borrowings into their um, into their evolved Latin from this other race, and it was just really nicely done. So did you find that these these sort of really creative ideas of what the culture would be like actually played out to a significant extent in the in the linguistics of the resulting language? Sometimes. Um, now that I've sort of awakened and realized, duh, put the culture creation assignment first, not last, which is I had it last. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, for the first couple of years I had it. Oh, yeah, and by the way, slap a culture on top of this. And that was just sad. So putting the culture first really, really helps, and it helps the students invest, and then I can, then we can play more with the morphology. And some of them do. It depends on how, how excited they are about the project. Some of them just make up a culture. Oh, they, you know, and there's the, the standard culture, which is the um, peace-loving forest dwellers who have no <laughs> sexism and racism, and it's all, and they don't have much technology, but everybody loves each other, and Hmm, I wonder where that one comes from. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's that's For some reason, it always comes up. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, you know, and the people there are always happy. And, and that, hardly anything ever happens with the culture there. You know, they just, they let that go because they're clearly not very invested in it. It's just sort of like, oh, yeah, the trees, the plants, the people, the, the birdies, the kitty cat. It's beautiful. <laughs> and, of course, everybody knows that, that, uh, Cultures that live in such environments have really simple languages, right? That, that is the yeah. other issue that I'm that I'm starting to think about now, is that I ask questions, um, and leave options. I think to a fault. I say things like, "Does your language have noun classes?" Oh no, 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 no. Okay. Does your language have subject verb agreement? Oh no, 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 no. It doesn't have that either. Um. Uh, how many tenses does it have? Oh, really? None? No? What about articles? No, no, none of those. <laughs> so everyone wants to create Toki Pona. <laughs> everyone wants to not work very hard. <laughs> you know, Toki Pona might be a beautiful thing, but um, if you're trying to get through an assignment without investing very much, you don't, you don't hypothesize. You don't put forward lots of agreement for yourself to have to follow. So I think I'm going to have to in- do some kind of portable point system about, you know, if you don't have subject-verb agreement, then you're going to have to have <laughs> noun classes, because we're not about beads on a string here, we're about language. So this is like, your language must be at least this weird to pass. Mm, yeah, I'm afraid, or at least, yeah, it's got to have some complexity <laughs> at some level. You can't just have, you know, ten consonants and three vowels and no phonology and, you know, nothing. Bring up Pirahan the first day. Maybe you'll scare him that way. <laughs> yeah. Piraha. I love I that one. 
Yeah, I, I, uh, that would be. I should put that on as a couple uh, in the in the grammar section. I should stick a couple examples of that in there. Careful though, that's like an active flame war on the linguistics journals going on. Yeah, um. well, you know, I, I don't care. <laughs> and I plan to and I plan to capitalize on that for the speculative grammarian. Yeah, I think that's that's necessary. And by the way, I uh, I have to mention that I uh, I really liked your work with the. Uh, the braille system for Klingon, and um, also come on, man, that wasn't her. That wasn't her work. That was by Stovepipe Wells. That was, right, that was Stovepipe. That was Captain Stovepipe. Oh, okay. Well, I think that you were an excellent guest editor for the Canadian edition. Then you just uh, <laughs> you really put your stamp on that one. Well, you know, I I wrote the mean letter to Trey about his you know lame journal and how it was impinging on my life. That's about what I did. <laughs> so I have to ask, you have this uh, page up on the BGSU website, which is called the Bowling Green Language Creation Guide. Uh-huh. And this reminds me a lot of, for example, Zompist's Language Creation Kit. It reminds me of the one by David Pablo Flores. It reminds me of um, describing morphosyntax to a certain extent, although that certainly wasn't created with the intent right. of being a conlanging guide. So... How do you feel about the resources currently available for somebody to sort of to teach someone how to conline? There's quite a bit out there. That there's you know, there's all kinds of good stuff everywhere. What I think has been missing is the step by step, walk you through it, hold your hand approach, um, which is pedagogically what's necessary. I think for a person who's really sort of self motivated, um, interested in finding out stuff, and has really uh, got it going on. Um, that there's enough out there. I mean, clearly there's enough out there. People do it, right? Um, and the thing that I wanted to build was sort of for the timid beginner um, who was roped into this involuntarily by fiat by the mean interlinguistics instructor. I mean, I felt like that was required um, that I build something like that. So I think there's there's lots of good stuff out there. I mean, you can get describing morphosyntax and just work your way through that book, right? Um, but pretty much. Yeah. Even that requires at least a, an introductory level of linguistics knowledge. Right. I, think, I wouldn't call describing morphosyntax excessively technical, but you have to have some grounding to, to start yeah. with that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, I think that also um, the concept is I, I get this in my classes. I say it the first day, and they're all going to build languages. And then I spend the next two days filling out drop slips. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. This is the stupidest thing. And the people who are left are either the people who have to be there because it's required for their major um, or the people who just think, yeah, no one's ever. They sort of feel like, and I think this is simultaneously sad and sweet, they sort of feel like no one has ever trusted them to do anything that big or that important before. Um, I get to build a whole language and then I get to translate something into my language and um, I just love watching them take ownership of that and watching them watching them get all excited about theirs. It belongs to them. It's their language, you know, and when they write a novel or a short story, they put their language in there, and then, um, you know, then they won't have grumpy linguists kibitzing their, their, their linguistics and their stories, right, because they'll have it, they'll have it going on. I'm, I'm curious what you think here on um, what the research potential might be into conlanging itself. Um, so far, there doesn't seem to be really any research to speak of uh, into conlanging. Oh, but see, um, see, they could be, right? Because there's right. all these primlangs. So I think, 
I think that you could look at sort of what people with minimal instruction, what people think language is like, what people think is unusual. I mean, people's there's lots of perceptions of language that you could do, right? I mean, I mean, the first finding is that everybody thinks English is normal, right? And then people will say, well, my language is perfectly normal because it's just like English. Okay. <laughs> I've 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 heard that uh, more than once you, from a conlanger. You mean English isn't normal, and that if we uh, it, it isn't the case that if we speak it very loudly, all foreigners will understand us. Hey, David, do I detect a note of sarcasm in your voice? <laughs> you know, it did seem to me sometimes when I was in Ecuador and I'd been kind of in my house alone for many many days without speaking English. It just seemed to me that sometimes the people were just speaking Spanish to irritate me, and probably when I left, they all spoke English to each other. I was going to It's 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 sort of funny though that conlanging is one of the very few activities where um, native speakers of languages, um, where normally they go about their life not thinking of language at all, and they just sort of they do language. Um, but most people have no real concept of language, the thing. But for some reason, some people start conlanging, and then they have to think about conlang- the language itself. And this seems that- just psycholinguistically to be a very odd and, and interesting behavior. Do you think that, that you could test to see if conlangers in general are less frightened by foreign languages, more open to foreign languages, more their perception might be that they're easier to learn than other people think, or that they have less xenophobia than other people? Hmm. I, 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 would, I would guess that that correlation exists, but I think it would be very hard to show causality. Okay, well, what if I, what if I, at the beginning of, no, no, because I would get confounded, because I've got to, they get a linguistics class, and we can show that linguistics classes do sort of open people up a little bit. Well, you, but, could, you could try this. You could take, like, a group of, of students for a Ling 1 class who have no prior linguistics background, mm-hmm. give them this sort of baseline test at the beginning of the class, um, randomly sort them into which class they're going to take, or just have it be random implicitly and just show that the two groups are more or less equivalent from the baseline test, mm-hmm. um, and do one test, one class, the traditional method, and the other class through something like your method where they have to conline, and see whether the results between these two classes are different. Yeah. Right. You'd have to compensate for the fact that I would enjoy teaching one of those classes more than the other. <laughs> well, you can, you can give it to a different teacher. Um, or you could try to cross balance it somehow. I'm, I'm sure you can think of something to do that. Could I? Could I? Would it be ethical to randomly sort them into just do half the class and say, okay, you guys are randomly in the language creation. You're going to do language creation assignments, and you guys, instead of whatever they sure. do of those, you're going to do you know an extra morphology problem. Oh. The first thing I think of is that uh, that might work from you know from an experimental standpoint. But thinking as thinking as a professor, oh, I feel I, I feel sorry for either group of students: the ones that end up in the language creation side that really don't want to be there, or the ones that think, "Gosh, that's the coolest thing in the world. Why am I working on UPIC?" <laughs> oh yeah. 
But that's yeah. the thing, you wouldn't be able to allow them to choose, right? Because that would confound it. No, absolutely, right. of course. Uh, from an experimental standpoint, you have to, it has to be random. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, I suppose I could just give up doing the conline thing for one semester and try to resurrect what it is I used to do, you know? And it wouldn't be that bad. I would just, I would just go through all the same material, but instead of having them do the language creation, I'd have them do, you know more morphology problems, more syntax problems, or whatever. If you haven't yet, you should totally talk to Sally Caves. Uh, I need to hook you two up. Yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, I think you two would love each other. I haven't. Um, I don't think... I've, 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 the only time I've ever heard that name is just from you. Uh, Sally Caves, a.k.a. Sarah Higley, University of Rochester professor of English. Um, she's taught uh, at least one class on... Um, Imaginary languages and languages in science fiction. Oh, um, and yeah, you, you remind me a lot. Sure. She was the advisor of a very good friend of mine, Doug Ball, who's now a ling. No, no, I'm sorry. He just recently got his PhD in linguistics from Stanford, who started out his, shall we say, uh, academic career by doing an undergraduate thesis on his uh, on his language and presenting it. Uh, at a Rochester re undergraduate research symposium, his language, Scara. What fun! Well, you know, good for him for having the guts to do it and for having the advisor that would say, yeah, do that. That's a good idea. <laughs> do that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think he totally lucked out on having um, Sally to, to be his advisor. If, okay. if you want to do conlanging, um, get a conlanger as your advisor, you're good. No <laughs> yep. So, thank you very much, um, oh, thank you, Dr. Sherry Wells Jensen, um, for your participation. Indeed, it's been a, a, thank a absolute pleasure um, talking with you about this. Fascinating. I really, really enjoyed it. You can find out more about Dr. Wells Jensen's current projects at personal.bgsu.edu slash tilde s-w-e-l-l-s-j slash Our intro and outro music are by Gary J. Shannon of fizzywig.com This podcast would not be possible without you, so please, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for people to interview, music we could use, or an interesting story to share, Email or IM us at lcs at conlang.org or visit our website, podcast.conlang.org. I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the Language Creation Society podcast. See you next time. Fiat lingua. Fiat lingua. Fiat lingua.